So 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 to 14. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him shall walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing, writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you little children since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you children, because you have come to know the father. I have written to you fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men, because you are strong God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. How many beats per minute? How many drops? How dope were the drops? Were any acoustic instruments used? If so, then it's not a banger. Once accidentally downloaded a Lumineer song, I had to throw away my whole computer just to be safe. Every song I download has to pass a series of rigorous tests, 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 not start that way, hey? <laughs> there was a lot going on in that video. You might not be aware, it's taken from a TV show, this guy Tom, he has this bunch of tests that he has um, for what a great song is. He's got to figure out, is it a banger? So did you notice he had a big list, he said, how many beats per minute in the song, how many drops, how dope are the drops, were any acoustic instruments used? If so, it is not a banger. <laughs> It's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? But I reckon he's onto something. We use a strict set of guidelines all the time when we think through if something is up to the right standard. 
Now, it's a pretty menial thing he's coming up with, just is it a great song or not? But we think of this kind of thing with all kinds of tests that we go through. We mentioned a few things before, piano tests, beep tests. We can have medical tests done or academic tests where we're trying to meet a certain standard. I wonder how many tests you've sat through, how many academic tests you've sat through at school, at TAFE, or at uni. It's probably hard to even count. And the idea of a test, it might actually fill many of us with dread. We remember those cold classrooms trying to get a test completed, racking our brains for the right answer. But we know that a test is worth it. It's worth it to figure out, do we actually know what's going on in this course? Are we actually well-equipped to do our jobs? Or are we actually healthy? See, tests are worth it. And today we're thinking about two rigorous tests in this part of God's Word. These two tests, they might feel pretty uncomfortable. They might feel a bit like you're having a CT scan or you're sitting through a maths quiz at times, but they are for our good. God's written them for our good. And John, he introduces us to a test of obedience and a test of love. That's where we're heading to today. And John, he's writing to people who claim to know Jesus. They claim to be in the light. And he wants them to know, is their claim backed up by the evidence? Do they have the evidence in their life? And for us today, can we really say that we live in the light? And as we open God's word today, I hope you can see that we want to pass these tests, that they are really, really important. We want to pass them with flying colours. So we think through first um, a bit of context where we're up to in this part of God's Word. Now, in the first chapter of this book in 1 John, we heard of three negative tests. Chapter 3 went through ne- three negative tests for how you can know that you, actually you're not in the light, you're not following Jesus. And now we think of two positive tests. And he introduces it by saying, this is how we know. See, there are two um, tests to see if you're really a genuine Christian. And we can apply these tests to others as we look through um, their life, their obedience, their love. We can certainly do that. And John, he was writing in this context where there was false teachers and people who were falsely claiming to follow Jesus. We can certainly do that. Yet we need to recognise that we're pretty partial in our judgement of others, aren't we? We're we're limited. We we don't know their hearts. We don't know really what they're like when they're by themselves, their obedience to God in those moments their love of God, God in those moments. So as we consider these tests today, we can actually consider it for other people to be discerning, to consider their walk with Jesus. But we wouldn't want to just forget actually thinking about these tests for ourselves, to slow down, to reflect how we are following Jesus, if we claim to. Because we can search our own hearts, We know our obedience, or we know our lack of obedience. We know our affection for God, or our lack of affection for God. And John, he says later in this book, he says that these tests, they're given to assure us of our salvation. He says this in 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who... Sorry, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Jesus the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. See, he wants them to know that they really do have eternal life. 
And as we start to unpack uh, this passage, I wonder if you noticed a word that kept being repeated again and again. Uh, The word know, like knowledge, kept repeating again and again. It comes up seven times. And he's writing this, and and he focuses on knowledge, because there was this false teaching happening at the time that he was writing. This false teaching called Gnosticism. You might have heard of that before. It, it just comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And they, in this idea of Gnosticism, they pursued knowledge, this secret knowledge, as their way to be right with God, their way to be saved. See, their test to know if they were saved would be asking, okay, what special knowledge have I uncovered that hasn't been revealed in God's word? Yet John writes this passage all about the certainty of knowing God and salvation through what Jesus has already done and what he's already revealed in God's word. So each of us today can know if we're right with God. We don't need a secret knowledge from God. So these tests for our assurance, what what are they actually about? Well, our first point for today, the obedience test. When there is evidence of obedience, this assures us that we know Jesus. When there's evidence of obedience, it assures us we know Jesus. So as we we start to think about obedience, we've got to remember that it doesn't form the basis of our salvation. Uh, Christianity is not works-based. In chapter 1, John's already explained this. He's already laid the foundation. He's reminded them that it is the blood of Jesus who died for us on the cross, and by that we've been purified from our sin. So we couldn't come up with obedience being our way to be saved. See, the test of obedience is like looking for a symptom. It's the evidence of salvation. And throughout John, this different uh, rigorous test that he describes, they're not like an entrance exam into being saved, but they're evidence to demonstrate that we are already that God is working in us. He is causing us to obey and to love him. But obedience to what? What does the passage say? Let's not beat around the bush. What is he actually saying we need to follow? It mentions commands a few times there. If it's supposed to be a test that we'll be strengthened by, well, what's our standard? Are the commands talking about all the Old Testament commands? But then in verse 3, we see... It says that they are his commands. They're talking about Jesus' commands. So it must be more. See, John goes on to show that what he's meaning when he talks about commands. You can look there in the passage with us today. In verse 5, he shows us that he's speaking big picture about obedience to God. He mentions obedience to God's word. So it's clearly more than just a set of rules, a set of commands. In verse 6, he really nails it down. He says, We know that we are in Jesus by this. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So there we have it. The obedience tests ask the question, Are we living like Jesus did? Are we living like Jesus did? And Jesus himself, he commands in John 14, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. See, true love for God must involve a moral obedience, not just our language, claiming to love Jesus. It's not based on just our experience of God, but obedience is key. So are we living like Jesus? And it's a massive question. 
How are you going following in his footsteps? See, we just had a series that we were looking at walking with Jesus. You might remember this if you were with us. During that series, you might have been really encouraged that you are doing all you can to strive and to follow Jesus. Or maybe you actually realize that maybe you're not following Jesus. At this time in your life, you're not following him. Or maybe you're someone who knows that you are not living like Jesus. Um, You don't claim to follow him. Maybe you're not really sure about who Jesus really is or if he's someone that you want to emulate in your life. And as always, we love having you here with us today. It is great to have you here with us. We love having you here and we hope that you'll continue asking these questions. You'll continue like, seeking for an answer to some of these questions that you might have today. Now, our passage for today, it's about these two tests. And they can seem pretty overwhelming when, they, when we consider them. It seems that they're asking far more than we can deliver. The, the standard is far too high. And the truth is, that's right. We, we can't perfectly obey God. We can't perfectly love Him. So you might be thinking that no one must be able to know Jesus then if, if no one can perfectly love Him. It seems like John is setting this bar far too high. In chapter 1, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. So what do we make of this high calling to obey God in everything, to obey Jesus in everything and his word? Well, an old 16th century theologian, he's helpful, I think, just in understanding what this passage is really talking about. Um, I found it really helpful as I read it. Um, John Calvin says this. It should come up there. John does not mean that those who wholly satisfy the law are those who keep his commandments, but those who strive according to the capacity of human infirmity to form their life in obedience to God. See, you can know that you know Jesus without being perfect. You can know that you know Jesus and it will be... Um, a growing obedience to God, a growing love for God. And it may involve doubt at times, and that's okay. See, we continue on as we started in grace. Obedience isn't a burden, but it actually shows us that we're free in Christ. And obedience just simply makes sense, I think, when you think about what it means to be a Christian, to be united with Jesus. It says this in other parts of, of this passage as well, of um, 1 John. It says, this is how we know that we are in him, that we're united with Jesus. I think obedience makes sense when we think of our union with Christ. I think of it as a plane. So if you think about how if you are in the plane, wherever the plane goes, you go. If it's ascending, you ascend, descend, you, you descend. So with Jesus, as he is risen back to life, We remember this at Easter. Well, we too will be risen back to life eternally. We're in him. What happens to him happens to us. But we must remember that Jesus, he was obedient to his father. He was obedient to his father. So we ought to be obedient to our father. But if we reject the commands of God, then it's as if we're removing ourselves from that plane. We've decided that there's a better way that we live a better way that maybe is different to how Jesus lived. And we take that step off. 
And I think it's clear that that will not end well with us. May we not be surprised that, well, hell awaits for those who choose to follow in a different way, to not follow what God has revealed in his word and to follow how Jesus lived. Rejection of God like that and his commands that we're not united with Christ any longer. We're choosing a different way. It's a serious thing. But may we not despair. God has given us the power to remain in that plane, to remain in him by grace and through his spirit. It doesn't mention it in this passage, but just a couple of chapters later, in 1 John chapter 3, he mentions it's by his spirit that we know God works in us and keeps his commands. It's incredible that we can actually obey God now by his spirit. Not only that, but I hope you find it comforting that there is actually a clear goal for our morality. See, God's word, it gives us a clear goal for how we ought to live, direction and drive to obey. And you might find in our society, so many people are caught up in, in relative living, in just deciding how they will live and what their um, determination of, of what is right and their morality is. This world, it throws at us such difficult circumstances where we're all left scratching our heads, I think. And for myself, I would hate to have to come up with my own morality from scratch or to come up with a combination of all the different um, things that I've heard throughout my life. I'm sure that I would be tripped up along the way. I'd be inconsistent in my morality. I'd be scratching my head time after time. But being a Christian allows me, and I hope it allows many of us here, to be more consistent in our morality. We have God's word as that clear guide. We have Jesus, how he lived, as our clear guide. Ethics is still really difficult, and we need to engage our minds um, in, a, in a real way, in a rigorous way. But God has given us a clear guide in his word and in Jesus. And he gives us an inward ability to actually live this out, this morality out through his spirit. So how are we obeying God right now? How are we obeying God when we're filled with elevated ideas of our own self-worth as pride comes into our lives? When we start thinking about our skills and our contribution to others? May we have the same mentality as Christ who considered himself a servant of others. Might we be humbled before God Or when we're tempted to treat others for our own gain, may we repent from this. It might be that you're prone to subtly manipulate others, to not tell the whole truth, to lie to others. Might we each be genuine that our lives might adorn the gospel, that our obedience and character might point people to Jesus, to how he lived. Might we as a church find great joy in obeying? Now on to our second test for today, the test of love. Now this test, it's about considering our love for others to see if we're really in the light. Now in this point we'll find that hatred, hatred is a symptom of still being in the dark. And this section on love, it begins in verse 7 there. You can follow along with us. John says, Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, 
But then a line later, he says that it is a new command. Did you notice that? It's an old command, but it's a new command. What is it, John? Well, it seems to be both. He stresses that this command to love is old. It's not like a new innovation like all the heretics. They came up with new ideas, left, right, and center. He's not saying that it's new. Throughout Scripture, we've heard to love others, a key thing that God has revealed in His Word. They've always heard about this love for others and love for God. But it's also a new command because Jesus even said this. Jesus said, you might remember, in John chapter 13, He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Now this idea of love it clearly isn't new, but what we're seeing there is that Jesus, he invested it with a richer and a deeper meaning through his life, through the way that he loved others. There's a more extravagant picture when we look to Christ and particularly his love for us on the cross. And we have a new definition of what love is. And we see this in our book today in 1 John chapter 3. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, we love in action and in truth. And this test about our love is for all of us. We can all lay down our lives for others no matter what situation that we're in. See, love is a litmus test to see if we are in the light. And for Christians, as they love like this, it's this display of the power of the age to come in this life, already, already um, breaking into our lives now. And in verse 8 we see, even now the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. A transformation is taking place by the way a church loves one another. We're able to love as Christ did, sacrificially. And John, he doesn't seem to doubt that they're doing this, that his hearers really do love like this. I mean, he does doubt and, and he regards those false teachers as fraud, but not so for the, his loyal members of his church. So we love as the litmus test for being in the light, it means that it's serious to be accused of anger. It's serious to be accused of anger. To be known as someone who can't be self-controlled and who easily boils over in those moments. Did you notice in verse 11, John teaches that those who hate their brother or sister stumble around in the dark. It distorts our perception and it twisted, twists what reality really is. Rather than bringing clarity, hatred twists us until, it becomes, until we become so blinded that we don't have any clue about where we're going. We, we trip up ourselves. So how are you going loving others? How are you going at controlling your anger? My hope, my prayer for each of us is that we continue to learn self-control. That we'd recognise when we're when we're caught up in a pattern of hatred, that we'd address it, that we'd repent and consider why we might have reacted in that way, consider wisdom on that, have conversations with people about that, ask for God's help in that. Might we not just be a group who are blasé about hatred, about anger? 
Might we be a people who are being transformed to love each other in those moments, to keep pouring out our love for others, just as Jesus did for us. Now, we've considered how hatred, it leaves us warped, and leaves us distorted. But those who love, they can walk in that straight way. They can see what's around them. Verse 10 says, there's nothing to make them stumble. It is clearly the better way. So might we each strive to live like that, to be men and women who generously and lovingly give of their time. It's so easy, I think, to become cold, to become bitter, to let hatred and anger creep in over time, particularly if you've had a um, particularly difficult life. I think it's really easy to become bitter and cold. I hope that many of us here today even uh, can remember that feeling of being loved by others, loved in that Jesus kind of way. Um, I certainly do. It's left um, um, a real impact in my life. I can remember a group of older uh, people in the church I grew up in, um, a group of older people who just had such care for all of the youth at the, the night service that we were part of. You'd talk to them, they'd remember what you talked about, they'd, they'd come and see how you went the next week. And I only realised about probably two or three years into it that this uh, older group of people, they met pretty much every week while youth was meeting. They'd meet for the same amount of time and they'd pray for us. <laughs> they'd pray for each of the people in that group. They'd think about us, they'd care for us, they'd love us. And that has left a lasting impact, not on just my life, but on a number of different teenagers' lives, that love for us. So as we consider our love, what does it reveal? Maybe today you need to restore a broken friendship. Maybe here at church you need to confess something to someone else. Confess bitterness in your heart. And maybe you need to ask for forgiveness from someone that you've hurt badly. May we keenly seek to live in the light by deeply loving those who are around us. On to our um, brief, our final point there. It's about the last few verses there in our passage, verse 12 to 14. He writes to assure each group that he sees them as brothers and sisters. He writes to assure them that they are his brothers and his sisters. Now, in this passage, it seems like it's a bit of a tangent. He starts addressing the younger, the older, all the children. Um, What's he going on about? But I think it actually really fits with the main point of this passage so far. So far, we've seen that there are a number of tests which assure us that we do truly know Jesus. And here he writes to two main groups, that they truly know Jesus. To the younger ones, the immature ones, they know Jesus. To the older ones and mature ones, they do too. John tells them of his view of where they stand with God. See, throughout this book, John, he's trying to assure people of their salvation. He's trying to assure those true Christians of their standing. But he also wants to rob those false people um, of what they um, think that they are assured of. He seeks to rob the counterfeit Christian of his false assurance. Now, in this section, it's not so much about the age of the people I think it's really about the um, spiritual wisdom, the spiritual development of these different people. The older are the more mature, the younger, the more immature. 
And it indicates that their love and their knowledge for God, it ripens over time. Now in verse 12 and 14, he addresses these little children. Now, I think that's really just a catch-all term for the whole group that he's writing to. He, he uses that kind of phrase throughout the book. Little children, little children, do this, do this. He uses this phrase along the way. But then he goes on to address the younger. He says in verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men. So to the young men and women who are in that initial fight for faith, he encourages them. They're newly grasping what it means to be forgiven by God. And he assures them that through Jesus' blood, they have overcome. They have overcome the evil one. And yet to the mature Christian, he writes that they know God who is unchanging. See, for the mature, that older Christian who's been following Jesus for years, their life has changed. Their life has changed in all kinds of ways. Their bodies have changed. They've aged. They've seen all kinds of movement in their life. But he writes to say God is unchanging. The same God that you trusted in many years ago, he is firm and stable. He is immovable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So whether we're immature or whether we're mature in our faith, by what Christ has done, we can be assured of our right standing before God. As we grow in our obedience and love for others. And it reveals that God is at work in us. He's transforming us to love and to obey God. This is an incredible reality that we've considered today. I'm going to pray now as we finish up asking God that he would continue to transform us in these two ways. Please pray. Dear Father God Almighty, how we thank you for all that you've revealed to us in your word and through Jesus. Thank you that he loved us. He loved us so much by going to the cross for each one of us. Thank you for his obedience to you, that he never wavered. He never thought of a better way to go against you but he was obedient all of his life. Dear Father, we do pray that we would be united with Jesus and follow in his footsteps, that we might love like he did, that we might obey you as he did, and that we might desire to be in the light in this way. Lord, we know that we need your help in this. We know that we cannot do this by gritting our teeth. We ask for your mercy on us to be transforming us from within by your Spirit. And we thank you so much for the work you do in us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.